Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. The title of today's show is Look Both Ways Before Crossing the Pit Lane. That title provided by Rob Carter on Twitter. Runner-up was Mark Greenhow with, well, Baku done. I'm your host, Richard Reddy. Welcome to the Baku Race Review, where we'll cover the events of the qualifying and then the other qualifying and then a short race and then another race. Yay! I love repetition. It's all a bit much, really, but there's a lot of talking points from that weekend. And I understand if that Grand Prix didn't rock your world. I get it. I know I'm a a dinosaur. I know I'm a grumpy Gen Xer, but I found a lot to be interested in in that race. And hopefully because you're here too, you also found the odd thing that you want to hear discussed. So coming up, we'll discuss Perez genuinely dominating the weekend with 1.5 wins for Stappen firing on all cylinders everywhere but the track, Aston Martin being just lovely all weekend, the rookies struggling and more on this episode of Missed Apex Podcast. But I'll remind you we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. Now then, don't forget that there are two opportunities to come racing with us. Email me spanners at mistapex.net if you want to come karting in Brighton with us on July 1st. And if you want to do an iRacing Sim Endurance 24 hours with us on May the 27th. More details later, but keep your helmets on for this episode to protect you from the possible physical violence of my panel like Matt Two Rumpets. How's it going, Matt? Is that debris on the track? Oh, wait, it's rain. It's rain. The rain came later. You're not getting that was that was Ocon desperately trying to play the refs at the end for a safety car. <laughs> Fair enough. And we're also joined by Brad Philpot. How's it going, Brad? 
My views on the sprint weekend have slightly changed, but I still don't think they're that positive. Oh, do you know what? We're going to get into the racing action, and I think towards the end of the show, we'll discuss how the weekend went. Because I think my views also changed. I went into it with a lot of positivity, and I've come out of it, still still getting the best out of it, but a little more grumpy and cynical. And, Agreed. And we're joined by new sports guy, Jonathan Simon. How's it going, Jono? Yeah, not bad. I can echo that sentiment. I had views and opinions of the sprint race weekend, as did pretty much most of the F1 fan base. Can't wait to share them. Okay, well, let's get into the big news, which I think was the battle up front. So they said the season was over, but if you look at the championship table at the moment, Max Verstappen is just six points ahead of Sergio Perez, who, remember, had problems in qualifying at the Australian Grand Prix. It's not over, Matt, by any stretch, is it, looking at today's result? No, as long as every race from here forward is on a street circuit, I think Perez has a real shot at this championship. Now, that's actually something as a Perez fan that was concerning me, because you look at the calendar and the big complaint last year was, why are there so many tight tracks and street tracks right up front? And they've kind of done the same this year. So coming up, though, is is uh, Miami. So there we go. We've got a street track. Imola, which is a traditional track, but, but tight, a little bit tight and narrow. Um, and then Monaco. After that, so Perez has got a little bit of, of hope ahead. Oh, I think he's got more than a little bit of hope. It's, I think it was overlooked a lot in the commentary today because, you know, it's Baku and where is my giant crash and flames yeah, yeah, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, I think Checo was, in terms of race pace, faster than Max all weekend long. He was faster in Saudi Arabia. And uh, we were treated to kind of the rare spectacle of Max being a little bit at odds with his machine. And, and he suffered quite a bit trying to get his differential to talk to his engine braking or his brake by wire correctly so that he could drive the car he, 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 the way he wanted to. And I don't know, it's a little bit intriguing because it hasn't, the needle swung his way very much last season. But so far, I don't think that it has. Jono. And, you know, no need to be cynical about it from my perspective, but look, Perez does have a street circuit sort of specialty. So the more that are coming up on the calendar, the more of a chance he probably has of maybe winning the championship from Montreal to Monaco, as you said, Spanners and, and all these races coming up. But to me, we, we, we see this most years where the number two driver sort of challenges near the start. And, and yeah, look, I'm not trying to sort of be a bit be a bit cynical like i said to to put say there's no title challenge coming but we saw this the other year where perez was sort of coming into monaco was saying look i i'm a force to be reckoned with and i don't remember ever thinking about him contending for the title after that so uh let's see where it goes uh but it was a very good performance this weekend let's not take it away uh from him and i think out of all 20 drivers i was thinking about this before i came onto the podcast and i thought you know what he was the best. There's no question about it. He won, he was the best, and he was on form. And I think it's important to get this out there now because there will always be the person who's like, oh, well, Max was clearly playing 17D chess with his power unit. He's going to make sure it's reliable. And I just want to point out the number of times both Red Bull drivers touched the wall suggests to me that, that they were they were absolutely on the limit for the entirety of that race. In fact, if you look at Leclerc or Alonso, who I think drove much more conservatively because they knew very well they weren't really chasing Red Bull for the win or P2 at that point, you can see you can see the difference. I think if everybody was pushing the 
you you'd see uh, you'd have seen well you'd have seen Leclerc's tires go and Alonso probably up there. But so just want to uh, turn to to Brad here as our resident race driver, who's uh, you know a Nordschleife champion of all things and has driven in uh, BTCC and, and a range of other sports cars, and not too bad in a car either. Not all those series that you've raced in, Brad, are constant overtaking and swapping. And I was trying to articulate the point to somebody earlier about how a a battle can be exciting without any overtakes. And I really feel like the broadcasts downplayed just the the battle, the intensity of the battle between Perez and Verstappen today. Yeah, we're definitely in agreement on this. I don't I don't set about watching Grand Prix with the view that they have to be constant. Um, overtaking fests for me to enjoy them. But I do feel like there needs to be a realistic possibility that the order can change somewhere down the line in the race. And there needs to be a reason. I didn't really see that today. Um, I know the two Red Bulls were pushing hard at the front and they were were pushing each other on to Mm. set faster and faster laps. But the gap kind of stayed the same and if anything got slightly bigger most of the time um, to the point where it was over three seconds at one point. I never really saw a credible threat from Verstappen, particularly because we saw what happened in the sprint race the day before. Ah. And so I I didn't Mm. have that same kind of no overtakes optimism because something will happen later. I just didn't see that happening. Oh, I today. see what you're saying, but I think I think what I'm driving at is that there still there was a battle because the fact that they were going all out was because Verstappen would be going out of that, oh, I'm tire saving, staying out of the 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 zone where you're getting buffeting and dirty air. And whenever he pushed to try and get a faster lap in to close the gap, Perez was able to to respond. And that in itself is is quite an interesting battle. And I think it's one that you can recognize if you do like racing such as yourself, but really at any level of, of sim or karting, you recognize that, oh, he's catching me a bit. I'll just try and get away. And even if it's not with hot tires like they have here or tire wear, sometimes it's, I am going to have to, to drive up the limit of my skill and take more risks to get ahead. Ah, there's a bit of a gap now. I can settle down. That kind of thing. Yeah, I, I understand what you're. Mm. I understand what you're looking at there. I just can't say I found that element particularly <laughs> exciting today. I feel like if okay. I was Sergio Perez, I would have thought that was an exciting fight today because I've got a nice result. It was fun because I was able to respond to the things to the challenges that were were set to me um, by my teammate pushing hard behind me. But as a spectator, I didn't. I didn't find that particular element super thrilling. You've you've tried hard though to to shed some light on something that you could point to that was that was excitement. So I admire that spanners. Well, you know, we see this in the missed apex sort of sim races and your F three races and your Le Mans races where you can have teammates who are pinpoint on the same pace, like Perez and, and Verstappen were pretty much this weekend. And in sim racing, you'll swap positions one lap, swap positions the next, swap again, and you have these types of battles. For some reason in F1, if you're around a similar pace to the driver in front in a similar car or you're within two, three seconds, you don't get this position swapping and this excitement that we usually get. There's some sort of dirty air effect within the last two, three seconds. There's no question about it. Every fan knows about that. That's been an issue with the sport for for, for decades upon, uh, I don't even know how many decades before that. But today... Verstappen has sort of been in that window behind Perez where you can't really do much when you're on the same pace. He needs to be half a second quicker. If you get the typical Max Verstappen round, he sweeps past, he wins the race by 10, 15 seconds. Today, it was an exciting battle in terms of the same way people enjoy watching swimming 
And when they watch people go, oh, what? they're going to beat that line to beat the world record. Oh, is it? And it's like, how is that exciting? Yeah. You know what I mean? And most people, I don't find that exciting at all. But that's what today's race was like. Okay, Matt. Oh, I enjoyed it. Did you enjoy it? Uh, yeah, I did. I enjoyed it for a lot of different reasons, even though I can concur with the overall sentiment. The race could have been so, so much better if they just brought out the safety car at a slightly different time. Yeah, yeah. You know, like like two laps from the end when Ocon was still in the points. I'm just putting it out there. No, it, it really, we sort of were treated once again to a spectacle, a potential spectacle, because we would have had Perez, who I think was better over the course of the Grand Prix, chasing Verstappen on same tires and probably one lap apart in strategy, absolutely flattened by the safety car. Hamilton lost out. He could have yeah. potentially been a player if he'd been up there when they pitted. So, so there was a lot of strategy wreckage in what, because the temperatures didn't stay hot like they were in the sprint race, rapidly turned into a one-stop race, which is never the most exciting thing. I'm willing to accept that some of my enjoyment of this was slightly improved by being a Perez fan and him winning the race and, and whether he could hold on. <laughs> so as a reasonably long-suffering Perez fan, it was actually more fun being a Perez fan in the midfield when he was beating up on bums in the midfield and taking the odd podium and the odd win. Uh, since going to Red Bull, been a little bit harder to be a Perez fan. So you assume almost in that situation today that Verstappen is going to close the gap. He's either going to be asked to let go or Verstappen's going to make make a pass. Uh, and Verstappen has generally is much better at you know taking advantage of these situations and cutting through a field. So once he's passed, you go, well, that's pretty much over. But but today, because of the sprint weekend, how he was doing in, in practice and qualifying and, and in the sprint race, you really got a sense of, no, he's got a bit of an advantage here. And I tell you what, Matt, I was disappointed in the end that the safety car came when it did because I, I was watching Sergio Perez sit there at 1.2, 1.3 seconds, close the gap to 0.7. Verstappen's crying out because he's struggling with his rears. Perez doesn't look like he's in any tyre danger at all. Verstappen's forced to pit. Now we're looking at a Perez big overcut on the mediums and then the safety car comes up. Uh, or any kind of an overcut, really. I, I mean, he was, as you said, he's sort of laid back a little bit in the opening stage where usually the person in the lead will push to try and get as far away from, to get their pit window as far forward as possible from the midfield. And uh, Max wrecked his tires a bit, but but again, like later he struggled on the hards too. His car setup was really good for qualifying, but I think it was, I think they missed, they missed the sweet spot for him a little bit in the race. And Perez absolutely didn't. Brad. I agree with you, Spanners, that the safety car, when it came out, I was disappointed from the perspective of someone who was rooting for Perez at that point, because yeah. I was watching thinking, well, he's about to get him anyway. Yeah. So we're now going to be in a situation where if Perez goes on to win because of, and he gets ahead right now because of a safety car, people are just going to say he got lucky with a safety car, which is exactly what panned out. Yeah. Even the team themselves seemed disappointed or Horner always seems disappointed if the particular driver he doesn't um, he wants to win doesn't win. Um, they're obviously very much behind Max, yeah. But it's you know they've still got a one two. It's it's exactly the same result ultimately for the team, and they were still trying to pacify, saying, "Oh yeah, you got unlucky with the safety car there, Max." But from my eyes, I yeah. I thought he was about to get past just before he pitted, 
and there would have been an overcut anyway, even if he yeah. um, even if he hadn't passed him in that moment. But was he going to get him? That's my question. Like, this is the same way we watched uh, Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas battle for years, and we yeah. thought, has, like, I can't even remember a single situation where Bottas or Perez overtook the other number one driver in the mm. team on track, legit on the same strategy. To me, yep. I, I don't see it happening. The hard compound lasted quite a while. A one, two lap difference on the compound maybe made, made a little difference. Don't get me wrong. But th- those two were, were on target with each other the whole race. Right, and, but, and regardless of when they pit, I don't think it made a difference. Uh, Jono, but you're assuming here that they both pit on the same-ish, similar laps. And then yeah. and then Perez is behind on the hard tyre. Does Perez catch and, and pass on that? That's an interesting question. But I think that situation only comes about because of the safety car anyway, Brad. And I think... Like Perez had a tire advantage at that point, so it wouldn't have been even. Yeah, so my perspective here is that Max was pitting. So for sure, Max was going to pit and come out on cold tires. And we saw all weekend in Formula One and in Formula Two that coming out of the pits on cold tires, you lost a bunch of time on your outlap. So even if Perez had literally just pitted on the following lap, he would have taken track position from Max. Just uh, unless unless the tires Perez was running on on his in-lap was so shot that he was losing a bunch yeah. of time. And that, that was not the situation. It looked like he was completely fine. Um, I'm pretty sure the overcut was really powerful here. Yeah, I think it, it would have been. And again, I will point to the fact that um, Perez was just quicker. Like the last 10 laps or so, Max yeah. was back on it. But, but Perez was, I mean, the gap went from 1.3, 1.4 out to almost three seconds at one point. So, yeah, I think there is margin there for Perez to have been able to have passed Max. He was he was generally, I think, better in sector two, getting a better exit on the straight. But what we're not talking about that I also think is kind of interesting is, am I wrong or was that a pretty big mistake with Nick DeVries pointed at a wall? Yeah. Yeah. For Red Bull to bring Verstappen in that particular lap. I mean, why would you do that unless you thought Perez was going to get him the next lap? So I'm really, this is a funny situation because obviously like you could put your tin hat on and I think you, your, your tin foil hat would be much better suited had there been an immediate safety car. He'd gone into the wall, had there been a safety car called there, then that was perfect, perfect timing for Verstappen to then come in, get a cheap stop, get back out ahead. And this whole uh, difference in tyres gets reset because obviously Perez also has to come in and have a double stack. So that would have been perfection. But what was thwart- what thwarted that was that there was a, a reasonably long yellow flag period and then a safety car period, which seems to happen quite a lot, Brad. And uh, so it's a b- bizarre decision from the outside because you think these things generally go like that. Double waved yellow, they see what's going on, then full safety car. The only way Red Bull coming in makes sense is if they assumed it was going to go straight to safety car. Okay. I understand your point there. So I, I just wanted to explain that Horner mentioned post-race yeah. that their their thought process was that it wouldn't turn into a safety car yeah. because they thought De Vries had just not gone into the wall and was going to reverse and continue. And the reason they thought that was because the damage De Vries sustained was from the left-hand wall. Yes. He'd broken his steering, but he then managed to stop the car and not have a big head on impact so they misread the situation they didn't notice that his front wheels were askew they just saw there's a car oh. stopped before the wall it yeah. hasn't gone into the wall ahead of it yeah so the race is going to continue if what you- they misjudged was that 
He'd yeah. already done the damage before that, and therefore he couldn't maneuver, and it was then going to turn into a safety car. That's actually really unlucky because if you look at the onboard, like he hits the wall, and the car is very the the wheel is clearly askew; it's it's clearly off. But by the time he gets to the wall, it settles in a perfectly normal position. So if you look at it static, you go, "Oh yeah, he's fine. He's fine." Um, so yeah, very unlucky, very unlucky from Red Bull, really. But had had that gone straight to safety car, and he'd have benefited massively from it. It, it looks dodgy. It looks dodgy again. But uh, but that just shows you that coincidences do happen. John, oh, then, Matt. I, I was just going to add that the fact that I'm, I'm glad DeVries didn't enter the pits because AlphaTauri probably would have sent him out thinking the car was going to work again, as we saw oh in the sprint. Gosh. <laughs> yeah, I've forgotten about that. Yuki Tsunoda limping back to the pits with the, uh, the, a very, very wrecked car. And then they put a, a wonky, trolley. wonky rear <laughs> wheel on and they sent him back out again. And then he just would didn't pull over. He just kept going round. So I'm convinced that it it must have been straight when they put the wheel on because it was very bent when he left the pits and anyone could yeah. see that the wheel wasn't straight, the suspension was broken or a toe link or whatever. But the chief mechanic, and I believe it was a chief mechanic, certainly someone senior had a good look at the right rear on Sonoda. They, uh, they, he gave it a thumbs up. They put the, I say he gave it a good look. He gave it a little look, didn't he? They put the wheel on. Sonoda left the pits. We then, I don't think, ever saw the moment where it suddenly broke. But these things happen quite frequently. Damage is done. You then, you crawl back to the pit slowly or whatever. You then put a fresh tire on, put a little bit of load into it, you know, do a burnout leaving the pit box and the thing then finally fails. And I'm sure it was something like that where it was weakened and it must have just broken going down the pit. And and we we they wouldn't have released him if it was actually wonky. What's the role role of the person that you just said there? Chief... Chief mechanic. Chief mechanic. I think is? that's how it was described on the broadcast. Right. So we, we, as armchair chief mechanics, I suppose it's easy for, for us to judge, but it could have happened to have stopped in what looked like a, a safe position. But it looked like when he was crawling around, you would not have bet on him being able to, to continue there. Matt. Yeah, I think I saw Sam Bird drive a car like that once in a Formula E race, and it was pretty exciting across the line. It was just sideways down the straight. But I, I'm I'm still curious because the placement of De Vries and, and Perez and Verstappen, when the incident happened, there was a fair amount of time before Max got to the pit lane. Yeah. And you would you would think that somebody was, was paying you would like to think, and probably from now forward, there will be somebody at Red Bull paying a little closer attention to the TV feed in situations like this. But it was a massive Perez benefit, even yeah. though it was a massive loss, I think, in terms of the excitement of the race. Yeah, there was a really good battle shaping up there. And the timing of that safety car did definitely rob us of that. And I think Perez will be feeling, obviously, you take that all day long. You take that safety car switch, you go and celebrate on the podium. That's fine. I think deep down, he, he might be a bit disappointed that he didn't get a chance to, to do that overcut to make a pass happen. However... If you can ever avoid having to pass Max Verstappen, I think you take that. He's very, very hard to overtake, especially in the same car, even with a tyre delta. I think, like like Jono says, there is no guarantee that Perez would have been able to make that pass. But had he done that in that way, then this win would be worth 10 times what happened today. Because you can just, you can hand wave it a little bit and say, okay, that, that was down to the safety car. But, you know, Perez has... Won a couple of races this season. He's had some bad luck. He's only six points behind Verstappen. I think you're hard pushed, Matt, to say that Perez hasn't at least had his best Red Bull start of the season 
so far. And to me, there's a fire in his belly and there is no longer any, oh, I'm just here to support the team. I'm doing my best. They are, he is talking on the radio to his pit engineer like he's a one-man team. We can win this. We need to avoid what happened in Australia, but great job, everyone. Like still, Australia is haunting him because he feels like he lost out in Melbourne and he should be the championship leader. It's game on. Vamos, Jekyll. Indeed. And you will note that Red Bull didn't make no effort whatsoever to swap around the two positions, even though clearly Verstappen lost out uh, with the safety car. And why would you swap positions? And that's a great factor that I was actually thinking about during the race mm. when so many people and pundits were suggesting, My goodness, uh, couldn't well, believe what it. if they, they swap them around and, and let Max win the race? And if I'm Christian Horner, I go, you know what? I'll let Perez have his glory now because we don't need to swap them. In the long run, who's going to average out to be the better driver to score the best results? Let Perez have his fun. Don't upset your second driver. Mm-hmm. Let him win. And eventually Verstappen will come through and win this title. Well, you're upsetting me by how you just said that. <laughs> Matt. I, uh, the obvious response is uh, Rosberg, Hamilton, Barcelona. It can happen. Anyone can have a 2016 Rosberg moment. Okay, so that was the, the, the one battle Verstappen had. Of course, he did have another one. Brad Philpott, before we get into Russell versus Verstappen, tempt people to come and play pretend racing cars with us. Okay, this is my advert shot. Okay, so if anyone listening is an iRacer, so you've got a sim and you drive on iRacing, Mist Apex is hosting the best Le Mans style. Oh, hang on. I don't know whether I'm actually allowed to say it. No, I can't. It's at Le Mans. It's, the circuit is at Le Mans. And it takes not 24 it. It's hours. the official no. Le Mans event. It's the Mist Apex event. It just happens to be. Event. It's a and coincidence that we're doing it at Le Mans for 24 hours exactly. Exactly. Mm. We are hosting a really well-organized event. There are three classes. So LMDH, which is the top class. There's LMP2, second class, and there's GT. And the GT and the LMP2 are split into pro and am divisions. So if you're not the fastest driver, don't worry. This is your opportunity to compete. Oh, Matt's got his hand up, obviously. (laughs) And and Spanish should have his hand up. Um, (laughs) Because they're both competing in, in one of the am categories. It's your chance to come and race in an event which is broadcast live with by a professional TV director person. Uncle Steve. Directing for this very show, Steve mm. Amy. Um, he's been working very hard behind the scenes to make this look amazing. Great overlays. We've got a great commentary team um, lined up in the background as well. And effectively, this is going to be your chance to race in a proper racing event. You'll be on a simulator at home, but you're going to feel like it's real. So come and join us. We've got places available in all of the categories at the moment, although I'd say two thirds of the grid are now sold out and you've got four weeks until race day. And we should say it's £15 per team. And if you're not in a team, uh, just drop us a line. So spanners at mistapex.net. And we will we are making up teams from individuals that are joining as well. So you can join if you're brilliant or, or not great. Spanners at mistapex.net. And the date was the 27th of May. 27th mm. and 28th of May, because obviously we're going around yeah. the clock. So starts at about midday UK time. So all times are UK. So if you aren't in the UK, if you're an Australian or if you're an American, that's great because it's a 24-hour <laughs> race. So you can slot into one of the stints that suits your time zone. All right. For more information, uh, spanners at mistapex.net. Okay. So one of the most fascinating elements from this weekend was a fairly innocuous bit of contact and racing between George Russell and Max Verstappen in the sprint race 
on the Saturday, which actually probably on in retrospect turned out to be the highlight of the weekend. And Max Verstappen was challenged by George Russell down to the inside of turn one. And then I think turn two and turn three as well. Actually, really good racing, as good racing as I think you can get on a tight street circuit like that. They did make a bit of contact and the, the front of George Russell's car punctured a hole into Max Verstappen's sidewall. And I don't know how many of you listened to the team radio, but the team radio was absolutely dominated on the F1 live timing app by Max Verstappen being incredibly unhappy with that contact, not understanding why it wasn't being investigated, why it hadn't been reported, and why George Russell had not been asked to, to take that, uh, to, to give that place back. And uh, his team initially kind of start, tried to start calming him down, but then eventually I think the rage spread through Red Bull. And Red Bull and Max Verstappen and his race engineer were very, very unhappy with George Russell to the point that it didn't let get, get let go. Even after George, uh, Max Verstappen passed Russell, later on after the safety car, his engineer came on and said, oh, look, you managed to do it without contact. And, uh, and then, of course, now famously, after the sprint race, Max Verstappen went up to George Russell and he said, what are you doing, mate? And then as he walked off, he said, you're a turnip and I don't like you and I will also hit you with my race car the next time I get a chance. A very, very scrappy and emotional performance and set of outbursts from Max Verstappen, Brad. I think, should we start with the actual incidents themselves? And I think what I'd like to establish is, is Max Verstappen, was Max Verstappen right to feel so aggrieved at George Russell? Because he was, he sort of had hit the nuclear option and that's as agitated as we've seen him. Yeah, so I'm going to try and be careful to not just talk about this for two hours because I've been reading <laughs> the rules again. Last year, I made a video on what mm. the specifics of the racing rules in Formula One were, how they were clarified last season. And I've tried to apply all these things to what we saw in the sprint race. Yeah, but fair enough. But we do have to assign blame. So I hope there's some blame coming because we'll make this our first segment of... Whose fault is it? Sorry, Brad, we worked very hard on those bumpers, so I had to make sure we get them We get them in. That's fine. I think we can assign blame because from my view, although the driving uh, guidelines are guidelines, they're not rules, as F1 Legal on Twitter pointed out Is to me, right? they're all we've got to go with. The guidelines are effectively used as rules because they are used to then set precedents and then we can look at what happened in the past and then judge incidents and look, uh, based on that and... and kind of point towards those guidelines. So anyway, out of the three side-by-side moments that these two drivers had, I think pretty much the first corner and I guess the third corner or the third time they were side-by-side, I don't think anyone has any particular issue with. There was no contact no. made. I think the thing that Verstappen took issue with and what really set him off the deep end was the fact that there was contact somewhere around the apex or just after the apex um, the second time they went side by side. So I think that's really the incident we need to focus on. Yeah. Um, the other two, they they well, made it through and yeah. it was fine. Well, the third the third one, they could have had contact, but Verstappen kind of moved out of the way. I think there was space for him, but he basically hit the wall by himself. But you're right. The second one is what caused the puncture. So yeah, that's the one that we, we should focus on. Yeah, so let's look at what the rules actually say in this regard or what the guidelines say. And although they are extremely confusing, badly written, and either <laughs> deliberately written Mate, to yeah. allow the stewards to basically decide what they want or just 
just badly done incompetently. Effectively, what they say is if you're overtaking on the inside, you need to have a significant portion of your car alongside the car you're overtaking. And they define significant portion as uh, your front wheels are alongside their rear wheels. So we can probably agree that Russell that was right? more than fulfilling that criteria. The next thing you have to fulfill for it to be a legal overtake or attempt at an overtake is you have to retain control of your car at all times and it has to the move has to be completed in a safe manner. And the final thing is that you must enable the car. It doesn't define the car as your car or their car, which makes it tricky to read this, but <laughs> you have to enable the car to remain within um, the racing surface or to remain on track. Yeah. And I think we can assume that by the use of the word enable, you're talking about the other car because you wouldn't enable mm. your own car to stay on, uh, you'd, but you enable someone okay. else. So okay. basically, Russell has to be slightly alongside. He has to retain control or be safe during the maneuver, and he has to not drive the other person fully off the edge of the track at the end. Okay, so that's well, well, let's take a on. pause in, in your conversation there and see, see what the panel's reaction is, because some of that was surprising to me. Uh, Jono and then Matt. Yeah, so first of all, like, guidelines are guidelines what you do need to promote and what you do need to think is is the emotional side of this is that look number one it's exciting for fans you also want to promote clean racing but you also don't want to detract from the fact that slight bit of a kiss of contact is also brilliant for the spectacle of the sport the (laughs) way it was police was perfect you know and i look i get verstappen had some terminal damage but in that situation russell assumes the same amount of risk there's no question you you run that same incident 10 times over, maybe Russell has a little DeVries moment and his suspension goes whack. So there's a situation in this where I go, you know what, whose fault is it? I I'm oh, I, I know you it. want people don't to pick somebody, but to me it's don't like look, it, Russell is the one who who takes the most risk. <laughs> okay. He is the one who who's if it's anyone's fault, it's his. But to me that that's you can't we can't over police mm. you know something like this. And I'm glad the FIA left it alone. Matt. Well, what I really love about this is that if we looked at the rules as Brad describes them, and if we take those as the guidelines stewards use in evaluating an incident where there's contact, it's clear, as Brad says, that that Russell was entitled to room on the way into the corner. It's equally clear that on the way out of the corner, Max was entitled to room. But what's not clear at all is how to assign blame in that very middle of the corner <laughs> where the contact hit. actually happened yeah. and is a highly, possibly too highly rated FIA driver. I'm real curious to get Brad's opinion on this. Yeah, man. And you're right. It was in the middle. But if, if I want to defend Verstappen, Brad, the first thing I will do in, in Verstappen's defense that it's Russell's fault is Verstappen did leave him room at the apex and did head towards a reasonable exit. Okay, so I counter with that's nice, um, like cool story, but that's <laughs> irrelevant. It's not, it's not part of the guidelines. Okay, so okay. as Matt suggested, it, the, these guidelines don't mention anything about what has to happen in the middle of the corner. And they don't mention anything about Max being allowed, or I say, you know, Max in this situation, the car on the outside being allowed any special room mid-corner. All that, it's, all that it talks about is what the overtaking driver has to do. It doesn't say that the oh. car that is being overtaken, if they leave you room on the apex, then they have a right not to have their space encroached upon. So Verstappen pointing to that, it's just irrelevant, essentially. Um, Russell just has to leave Verstappen room on the exit. That's all he has to do, provided he's not you know, completely out of control. And I know Verstappen would point to the slight lockup that Russell had and say, that proves he was out of control. 
that that isn't defined clearly in the guidelines. So I guess the stewards took a view on that. And one thing which is clear, and this I'll, I'll end on this, um, in all of these guidelines, whether we're talking about the car um, attacking or the car defending, it puts a very clear emphasis on the fact that being on the outside is the low ground. So there's a higher standard you have to achieve in order to be afforded room if you're going around mm, the outside. Now, it particularly talks about overtaking around the outside. It doesn't talk about defending on the outside. But since it doesn't talk about defending at all, we have to assume that there's still a, you know, a, a greater risk assigned to the person who is hanging on around the outside and the high ground is deemed to be the person on the inside. That's why you only have to have your front wheels alongside their real rear wheels if you're overtaking on the inside, but you have to be ahead of the car if you're trying to go around the outside. That's the way they view it. So I, I just don't think Verstappen has a leg to stand on in this situation. And I don't think Russell did anything wrong. Ooh, I'll try and counter in a second, but Jono, get in there. What I was going to add was quickly, the way that Brad was explaining that, and I don't know if it was caught on camera, the way that trumpets and, and spanners both just sip their cup of coffees or whatever you actually sort of substance Coffee. you were drinking during that. I'm ready for I'm ready for an argument here. Look, my favorite part, just one thing I want to add before you two go and go into it is my favorite meme of the whole situation was somebody uh, photoshopping George's arms into Max's damage. <laughs> you know, that little fly just separating the damage. Yeah. I mean, that was quality. Whoever made that up, that was circulating around the internet. Uh, okay. Can, go on, Brad. Can I just also add, I know I said I was finished. No. That Max, <laughs> Max pointing to the fact his car got damaged doesn't in any way speak to who was at fault for that damage. Yeah. He was pointing at that like, there we go. That's proof that I was wronged. But no, I mean, I'm not saying this was the case, but equally, mm. if you turn in on someone, you get damage. And that's that's your fault. I'm not saying he did necessarily turn in on Russell. He just, he squeezed okay. enough that yeah. there was a risk of contact and contact happened. That's it. And, and Verstappen defending will squeeze. If he's on the outside, he absolutely will squeeze uh, generally on entry. He doesn't mind that at all. And that can be done brilliantly. And Hamilton did that in the main race against Alonso to make Alonso just nope out of a move into turn two. But it is a trait that Verstappen will squeeze into the apex as well. And and not necessarily, because you would think if you were both trying to just survive, you know, you would both go out all the way to the exit. You don't have to do that. Just like at Silverstone in 2021, I don't think Verstappen was obliged to go all the way to the left, but he could have done to make contact less likely. The line Verstappen took does... In invite some contact because once he takes that line, George Russell can't do anything else. He's already committed to where he is. But isn't that George Russell's kind of problem? <laughs> because Verstappen, if he leaves room at the apex, he's also not obliged to just go all the way to the wall either. Well, this is why as a driver, as a racing driver, when you're in an attack-defend situation, you make a decision of, am I going to defend to the inside? Am I going to try and hang around the outside? Like, that that's your... That's up to you what you decide in those situations. And if Max has if Max has put himself in a position where he's the one on the outside, then you have to assume the risk that goes with that. You can't just say, uh, as he was saying, someone's dive bombed me when they were there the yeah. whole time. You know, R- Russell was a, was there or thereabouts all the way through the breaking phase yeah. and up to the apex. So he didn't just dive bomb him. That's a complete mischaracterization of the situation. So I, I just I can't see unless you're arguing for special rules when people are specifically racing Max that we wouldn't apply to any other situation. And I think that is what he is asking for, if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, then I, I, can't see, I can't see how it's defensible that Russell was in the wrong. Yeah, look, along with that is 
when the team was complaining about the sort of risk factor to it, from a sporting sense and for people who look at this situation, it's I, I know where Max is having a sort of, I don't want to say tantrum about it, but where he was annoyed is because, look, who's assuming more, more who's got less to risk here? And it is George mm-hmm. Russell, you know? So George can take that risk. And that's why Max is annoyed because he's in a situation where he goes, it doesn't matter what I do in this situation. There's a wall to my outside. There's a driver who's essentially acts like a wall on the inside. I can't do anything. So I understand Max's issue because he's an athlete and he's, from a sporting perspective, doesn't want to risk a championship, which George at the moment is not fighting for. No offense to George. Max is simply annoyed because it was his own damn fault and he knows it. Oof. No. Oh. <laughs> And I'm sorry. Now I'm applying, I'm not applying the Bradley Philpot lane system here. I'm not applying any written rule whatsoever, but my own personal sense is, well, who left whom the most room in the middle of the corner? And what I can tell you from having watched the onboards is that Russell missed the apex by the exact width of the curb. And during the entirety of that turn, he had full lock on as mentioned by Alex Brundle. On the other hand, Max had about two and a half car widths that he could have taken advantage of to have not squeezed Russell so tightly. So in the instance of contact, Max has put himself at a lot more risk than Russell has. So I, to me, that's on him. It's a very easy choice to make if we're going to assign blame there. And we should. Uh, uh, Brad. I I just want to point out because Max meant, uh, Max, Matt mentioned missing the, there's a lot of M's there. Mm. Matt, mentioned missing the apex there from Russell. And and again, mm. and Matt wasn't saying this was relevant. He was just um, talking about the line, but yeah. missing the apex, as we know, isn't relevant to this discussion. No, uh, no, what, you, you, yeah, you, you don't have to hit the apex. Someone's saying, why aren't we discussing turn three? Hello, patron, live chat, by the way. I think that's, that is simpler. Verstappen had the option to either back off or, or jump to the side, and he sort of, well, he just drove into the wall by himself. I don't think there's too much controversial about that, but let's uh, move on down the grid. Tickets now available for July 1st karting. Go to MissedApexPodcast.com forward slash karting. Get in there quickly because uh, tickets are going to sell out very, very soon. Email me spanners at MissedApex.net if you have any questions. Uh, let's move down the grid a bit. I think the, the next interesting story here is actually probably Lewis Hamilton having one of the better weekends that we've seen. And and I think as a as a Hamilton fan and looking at this young buck George Russell coming in and on paper kind of really taking it to Hamilton and if anything staking a claim for being a team leader George Russell has been you know brutally consistent in delivering what George Russell can deliver Lewis Hamilton has been much peakier than we're used to seeing him be so the last time we saw Lewis Hamilton being this peaky in performance it feels like you almost have to go back to 2011 to see that but last season and a half he has been up and down. I think Lewis Hamilton's peaks are higher than George Russell's peak. And and we saw Lewis Hamilton at a peak today, Jono. I think we saw full-on, fiery Lewis Hamilton. And dare I say, he sort of he sort of humbled his young teammate a little bit. Yeah, he had a good weekend. And here's the thing with Lewis Hamilton is since George Russell has joined the team, all his best drives sort of come when the car's great for P6 or it's great for a P3, great for a P2. Whereas George is... 
produced his great drives when the car's good for a win or good for pole. And so that's where George gets a lot of great credit. And um, obviously, we know best driver pairing on the grid, no question about it, no no doubts about that. Really? But this weekend, Lewis Hamilton was was a, in a class of his own, and he was just so much quicker. The safety car restart, to me, how was that not mentioned? I watched the Sky oh, commentary. Never saw they it. They completely missed it. Never they, saw they, it. Lewis is... What was he, 11th, 10th or something, Spanners? And then he gains two, three positions in the the space of like three corners or whatever it was. You know, the dude had an amazing safety car restart, was right on the back of his teammate, ended up passing his teammate, finished in sixth, despite the unlucky event of of where the safety car put him. I reckon he was one of the worst off from the safety car periods and he still managed to make up for it. Right. I just wanted to temper the Hamilton um, enthusiasm slightly. You've been Um, ruining everything all night, Brad. (laughs) I, I thought he had a good weekend, but it wasn't flawless. It wasn't like his best weekend ever. He he was slightly too slow in the sprint qualifying. Russell got the better of him there by enough of a margin think, to be... Did he not make a mistake on the final run, I think, as well? There was also some, some slightly um, ill-chosen positioning that Hamilton made with his car in the early stages of a sprint race. So he, he lost a place or two that... It, on on balance, yes. if he'd watched back mm. the video, he probably would have thought, "Yeah, I know committing to about. go to the outside yeah. of a car is yeah. opening myself up to be overtaken by a lot yeah, so, whoever it was." So behind. basically, I think like in both the starts, he got a much better run at signs than I think he was anticipating, and ended up having to back off twice, and then he had two battles with with Alonso. It's one of those situations where, on a different track, with that kind of um, overspeed yeah. on the car that you're attacking. You could kind of go a bit on the painted area or put put a tire on the grass yeah. if you had to and use your momentum to get through. But on a street circuit like this, you can't use it. You've you've got all this extra extra momentum that you, you can't do anything with. And you could choose to try and place your car on the outside or you could just slot in behind. And I think slotting in behind would have been the, the better decision in a couple of those. That, that's all I'd say. Aside from that, I thought he had a good weekend, certainly today. And the the surface was re uh sorry the yeah the surface was resurfaced for this weekend the track was resurfaced for better there words uh, on that so I don't know if that had a had an effect on on Hamilton going around the outside I will tell you this if it was Alonso around the outside in any situation at any corner in F one he'll make it work and you'll pass somebody so sometimes there is a bit of a driver element uh, to this as well. Uh, but apart from that, look, it, it's don't get me wrong. Brad's right. Like Lewis didn't have the most flawless sprint, uh, but in terms of pace, in terms of sessions, in terms of dominance, you were confident that he was going to get the job done on his teammate. There are weekends where you go into it with Mercedes and you go, I actually don't know who's going to qualify ahead of who. Whereas this weekend, you knew Leclerc was going to wipe the floor with Sainz. Sainz didn't nail the setup, you know, had a poor setup after Park Ferme was locked in. We'll go into that later on with a new format. but. Um, yeah, man. I mean, look, Brad's right. Lewis didn't have a flawless sprint. That led his weekend down a little bit. But he was still the better driver. Let's not get that wrong. Agreed. Well, and equally on point, we have Russell apologizing to the team about his terrible restart in the race today. But it was huge for Lewis because I think he was as low as 15th when he pitted. And and let's understand, he pitted before the safety car came out, mainly because he was really struggling on the medium tire, which I think must have had a lot of graining for him at that point. And Alonzo was just about to pass him. And rather than let that happen, Mercedes brought him in. Mm. But on the restart, it's crucial that he not only got past Russell, but he also got 
uh, got by Stroll and essentially back up to signs, which was where he was when he pitted. So, yeah, that was an amazing bit of driving from him at a crucial time in the race. And then how often have we seen Lewis Hamilton pit first? You know, that was surprising to me with the graining and the tire issues. Not the first time. I'm not saying we never see it, but I'm saying normally Lewis goes long. And he knows yeah. to go long unless the team force him to come in and pit early. He knows there's a value to this overcut that we talk about, that, that we know. And so I was very surprised when his tires were suffering. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So so I think at that time, everyone thought it was going to be a, a two-stop race. I don't think anyone was expecting the hards to go that long. They'd not done a lot of testing in the hards. So that was quite an aggressive, right? We're going through graining. We're struggling on the rears. I don't. I don't quite think Alonso was on the verge of, of 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 about to be leaping at him, but certainly he was going to have Alonso to deal with. But at that time, Matt, it seemed like a reasonable strategy to go right. Let's pit. Let's do our our two stop and let's be on the front foot here. But but even then, they still pitted him out behind a ch- a chain of four slower cars. So all in all, that was just you know it, the disaster was. Oh, he, he can't keep the the rears grippy. Then we pit him onto the back of a slow train. Then we get the safety car, which gives everyone a free stop. It, that looked to be like that was going to be right. That's pretty much your competitive race done. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, Alonzo was about four tenths of a second behind him when he pitted, headed on to the main straight. Um, so it, it was if it wasn't happening that lap, it was definitely happening the next lap because you just look at his lap times and, and, and they weren't there probably. If I had to make an educated guess or an uneducated guess, depending upon who you ask, it was he took too much out of the tires at the start of the race and damaged them, you know, keeping up oh. with the... Um, well, well, if you... Because Mercedes... Yeah. yeah go ahead. The, sorry, I was going to say the Mercedes was super slidey. If you look back at turn one and you look at like Hamilton behind signs, you know, Hamilton was nearly at 45 degrees, you know, drifting. There was a couple of cars that were like that. The Haas was going in sideways to a lot of corners. Even even Perez was was going, you know, re- rear end in first. Uh, but the Mercedes looked particularly bad. So it's no surprise that they would be struggling with with the rears. I think you're right. He might have cooked them early on. 
Yeah. And, and then that naturally leads to this uh, point in the race where I have to pit or I have to get past. And like you said, the track was still hot. It was still 42, 43 at that point. And we know from the sprint race where it was that hot that the tires just weren't lasting. Nothing was giving the expected amount of laps. So it, it was a good decision from Mercedes that wound up really could have really worked against him. And, did, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the sliding issue because then there's another issue is that, okay, you're sliding too much in the slow speed corners. The straights, the Mercedes looked horrendous. And, and I'm, the speed trap times I'm looking at from the race, like the fastest 15 laps for each driver in the speed traps. And the Mercedes were in the bottom half. They were one of the worst cars. And when you watched it visually, you knew it. You knew when you watched it visually, like, I would watch uh, Lewis or George, can't remember who, but they had DRS. They were in the slipstream of a driver catching him. And as soon as they ducked out of the toe on the main straight, it's like, where was that car going? It just was not propelling itself. Um, I mean, the camera did change, and then eventually the Mercedes was in front, but it didn't propel itself the way other cars did. And that straight line issue continues to amaze me with the Mercedes engine. Well, it, well, it's not the engine. It, that Mercedes is about the only team that didn't bring big updates to mm-hmm. this track. Imola is where you're going to see sort of what gains in efficiency they have made. So really, this entire weekend, they knew was going to be very difficult for them, and they were just putting Band-Aids on it to get to Miami and Imola, where the way their car concept works is going to be slightly more advantageous. Ah, at MattPT55 on Twitter, Matt's Trumpets on Facebook, I see you've tried to skip forward to my next topic before I was ready. I have one last question, and then we will go to Aston Martin. Brad? Who's better? Who's quicker? Russell or Hamilton? And I only ask because for Russell, that must have been a little bit difficult to take today when your teammate is just, you know, basically making you look a bit bottassy today. Not generally over the last, but, you know, you must look at that today and go, wow, he just, I didn't have an answer today. I don't think he looked bottassy today. Certainly not sorry, 2023 bottass, bottass sorry, who's having an absolute shocker. Yeah. Uh, I think they're extremely evenly matched and that speaks more to the fact that I think Russell is excellent rather than I think Hamilton is waning or anything like that. I think Hamilton is Hamilton has more depth as you'd expect from someone who's been around that much longer and has been at the level he's been for that much longer. So I think or in, in terms of one lap pace, they're almost inseparable depending on the situation. Over the balance of a season, I would I would back Hamilton more because I think he's got... He's just got more experience and depth to his driving skill that he'll find something in in race situations. Uh, So interesting observation number one. We had a practice session that was kind of not entirely uh, with it in terms of temperatures and times. So it speaks, I think, to Hamilton's adaptability versus Russell, which may very well be down to experience and not just talent. Uh, But I I do feel the need to speak up for uh, Valtteri here because I've seen him getting a lot of grief on the internet. He got hit twice from behind by Kevin Magnussen on the very first lap. And I'm thinking there's no way he didn't have diffuser damage and a probably fairly significant loss of downforce. Plus, Joe retired. So there may have also been a power unit issue that they were managing. There are plenty of times Botas deserves lots of criticism, 
But I think I think today is Good. not the oh, day well. to take the temperature of the whole thing. I, I'm glad, and I didn't mean to use botassi as a as a verb. That that feels very harsh. Sorry. <laughs> I am not a fan of Aston Martin. There, I said it. Generally, and this could be from Perez fanness and him being ousted from the team with uh, Otmar saying all the time, like, no, we love Perez. He's brilliant. He's going to stay here for 100 years. And then the next day, kicking him out and making him homeless. It could be that my general chip on my shoulder, it makes me feel resentful towards someone having a team essentially bought for them. All those things don't make any of those people bad people, but it does make me less likely to be a fan of them. And I think I've been honest enough. However... I will say that Aston Martin have been lovely this weekend, just all around, and have bred positivity, camaraderie, sweetness, good PR. I've loved, I've really enjoyed, I'm a 42-year-old man, and I've enjoyed the response to the Taylor Swift, Alonso dating rumours. I think they played it really well, and it was fun, and everyone had fun with it. And like Alonso could easily have just gone, no, or yes, but instead... He like avoided every question in exactly the way you would do if you needed to stoke more rumours. And I thought that was brilliant and playful and great. The, the, the team element seems to be brilliant. Stroll didn't want to interfere with Alonso's race. Alonso wanted Stroll to have the, the best tactics, uh, to have the best break settings. So I will say that I am left at the back end of this weekend a step closer to one day eventually liking Aston Martin. I think that's as important in sport as anything. Matt, I think there. I'm not saying I'm going to be a Aston Martin sh- fan tomorrow, but they made me like them this weekend. Well, yeah, and they played such a team game. I mean, they had DRS issues and in the sprint qualifying, we saw Alonso giving Stroll a toe so he could get into the last. I, mean, I forgot about that. Qualifying He's sessions. so lovely, well, that Fernando. Such a nice boy. But I will just point out that <laughs> what an interesting way to stamp your authority on the team than constantly giving help and advice to the other guy. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Tell Lance, you know, I, I found this break bias, break bias setting on my own and it's really good. You should probably tell him that he might be quicker from back there. That might help you catch up. <laughs> exactly. Phil it's, it speaks to how comfortable Alonso is that he is definitely the faster of the two and how he's not threatened by Lance at all. And I, the thing that I found the most uh, heartwarming is one way of putting it, or just like funny is another way, is Stroll saying, I'm not going to attack Fernando. Yeah. The team saying, <laughs> Stroll's not going to attack you. And Fernando going, well, he can have a go if he wants. I mean, you <laughs> can just, try. That's how confident he is. I mean, it's, it's just so cheeky. It's sort of cheeky in a way from Lance because like you're – double world champion teammate who is obviously and consistently faster and definitely better than you is stuck in a DRS train on a very hard to overtake track and you catch up to that train and then you're like don't worry I'm not gonna absolutely mug him for no reason in a move that could only damage both of us and the team it's like okay thanks for thanks for confirming that you're not gonna hit self-destruct Lance that's very good of you are, are you all three of you easily that gullible for all this kind of stuff? <laughs> go on then, Listen, go, go, go. if Gene Z was on this podcast, he and I have listened and took every lesson out of the Alonso Alienation Academy, where <laughs> I have trust issues with Fernando Alonso, and I'm hearing these messages to stroll. I'm hearing him give some. I'm watching him give somebody 
a toe to help them in qualifying with the DRS issues they have. And I'm going, I don't trust this. This is fishy. This Are is you, too uh, nice. Jonah, he goes from fishy. one end of the scale to too nice. It's fishy to me. I think he's what doing he's it for the boss's son. Like if Lance <laughs> wasn't the son of the guy who owned the team, yeah, of course he wouldn't be doing that. It's completely transparent. I don't think it's fishy at all. I just still find it surprising that Alonso is willing to do it. This really speaks to Brad's pro-am theory of Formula One that a few seasons ago it was going down that pro-am route. But I'm getting really strong Lego movie uh, president business vibes before he turns into Lord business and he's actually the bad guy. If Fernando Alonso starts offering Lance Stroll tacos, we know he's in trouble. Well, yeah. And again, the thing, the, the question to be posed then is who would you rather have in Q3? Lance, your teammate that you know you're way faster than, or somebody else who might actually pose a threat. I mean, of course he's going to help Lance out because that's just one less thing he has to worry about in the next session. I don't know. What's the next radio message? And it's this sweet. There's like, please tell Lance, you know, please uh, just tell Lance that after the race, I'm going to be going out to the big field and I've got my own football. So can he come out and play? And can he ask Lawrence if he's allowed out and how long he's allowed to stay out for? At the moment, it's super wholesome, Jono. Stop being a cynic. They've had a great weekend. They've all been lovely. And you're just a ruiner. Look, I, I, I love Fernando. One of my favorite drivers ever, right? Don't get me wrong. This is why I love him for this stuff. Because he's just so entertaining to talk about. <laughs> but I know that there's something like fishy about this. And I reckon in his contract, there's like a bonus for how often he helps Lance. And it's like a 50 grand bonus every time he, he does something. Because there's no way he's doing this out of being nice. <laughs> uh, for, what, what, so he was 42, what is he, 43 years old. So for 42, 42, 42 years 42, of his 42, life, yeah, yeah. he's what had a midlife crisis all of a sudden and gone, oh, I should be nice for once. Well, maybe, no, there's no. something going on here. Yeah, he's dating Tay-Tay and she's a super great person and he's just making him better. He's making him be a better man, Brad. So what's happened here is Lance Stroll has had the best of everything his entire life. And he's had uh, a race team bought for him. Money is no object, object in the Stroll universe. And he now has the best driver coach that he could have. His dad has effectively bought him the top race instructor in the world to come along and help him out and be his coach and get him up to the next level. That's it's, it's exactly what's happened. And Alonso yeah. Alonso's comfortable in that role because he... He knows how to help him out. Yeah, and, and he's comfortable enough to know that no matter how much he helps him out, he's not going to be better uh, than him. And if Lance does have a weekend where he gets a great result ahead of um, uh, Alonso, he can just congratulate him and be super mag magnanimous. Uh, but I will point out, whilst, whilst you know, Stroll, Stroll is fine. Like, he's doing, he's doing well. He's, he's fine. He's an employ employable driver. He did have a bad weekend, qualified poorly, uh, hit the wall, uh, had, had a little off that let Hamilton pass when that was a very defendable position. Um, so he's, he's, he's not had a great weekend there, to be fair. And he was helped in qualifying by Fernando Alonso. So I'm just going to note that I'm not giving Stroll a high rating. I would give him a six out of 10 for this race. Well, and it just, I just had this thought. It brings back to me, look at the difference between Max dealing with Perez and Alonso dealing with Stroll. And this is, again, why I think we might see something different this season than we saw last season out of Red Bull. Just little things like that. Jono, did you have something there? You oh, really no, I was going to say, didn't he finish fourth? You said that he gave him a six out of ten. Oh, as a rating. Are you talking about Alonso? Driver. No, oh. no, a Stroll. I was giving him a generous oh, six out bad. of ten. No, no, <laughs> Alonso uh, 
finished fourth. And I think there's absolutely no doubt that Alonso is bringing the fire this season. And uh, mm-hmm. obviously, his benchmark is Lance Stroll. So it's hard to tell exactly how well he's doing. But Brad, I think his gap to how well Stroll is doing, I think we know Stroll is, is broadly fine. Like, like I said, I think if you uh, had started a new team, you could employ Stroll as your number two driver. And I don't think that would be the worst decision in the world. But Alonso is, is looking better enough from Stroll, if that makes sense, that you can see that Alonso is still really bringing it. And it's, it's so impressive. Yeah, I think your view and my view of Stroll and Alonso are probably quite well aligned. Okay. Uh, I, I think Alonso is showing that he's significantly better, but also Stroll is doing fine. Fine. Like It's just a case doing of okay. we're still in a Formula One where we don't have 20 Alonso level drivers or 20 Hamilton. It's getting better. We're still in, a, we're still in an era where there's a hangover of there's not a, the pool isn't big enough and the the meritocracy isn't really there yet that we've got everyone is on that super elite level that that's what we should be getting to that's what we should aim for eventually i thought for a second brad said it was going to be like 20 fernando alonso's on the grid like clones just imagine the punch-ons <laughs> that would happen and the radio messages that would be a soap opera I was just yeah. pointing and they'll all have had the best race of their career every single time i, I will speak to one point though because i think the the general quality I was fearing it was going down a pro-am route, especially when, when we had Mazepin. I feel like it's getting better now. And there's a core of the, the younger drivers who are coming through who are just great. And, and actually, something that, that Verstappen maybe, have, maybe has to come to terms with now is he is fighting drivers who are coming through a new era behind him. Even though he's still very young, he came into the sport and was basically just beating up Grandad. And he, he, he took a new style of racing in that kind of surprised other drivers and wasn't getting penalised. And so when the Russells come in and do pretty much exactly the same thing to Verstappen as he's been doing to everyone else for the last few years, he's suddenly surprised because he's used to being kind of the only one to do that. But now you've got Russell up front who's happy to do that, Norris up front who's happy to scrap and fight like that. And it's, it's, it's happened many times in F1. Schumacher came in and turned everyone into Schumacher. And by the end of his career, Schumacher suddenly was having to fight Schumacher-level people instead of people hanging out of the sides of a, of a car with a cigarette and, uh, and, and the nearest GQ magazine party. So Verstappen is now, I think, facing some of those, those things as well, where the rules have evolved to make a Verstappen-shaped driver and the way he drives more, uh, more the, the evolutionary path you have to go down. And he's going to have to deal with that. Yeah, he's having to fight people who grew up on the tactics that yeah. he invented as a grown-ass person. And so that that is a challenge. But am I the only one here Probably. who finds myself torn about Alonzo as a driver? On the one hand, I love it, an old guy doing well. <laughs> yeah. But imagine the commentary when he finally retires and is on <laughs> F1 TV or Sky or something like that. Well, he'll, he'll be on uh, Dazen. F1, which is the, the Spanish outlet, which had very good coverage, even though I only understood every other word. Uh, but yeah, it would be um, it would be interesting to get him as a as a pundit. I think we're a little while off that because I reckon he's going to be in for a couple of years yet. OK, well, uh, the, the last sort of top team that we are going to go to is, is Ferrari. And it's kind of odd 
that when Ferrari finished on the podium, were essentially the second best team of the weekend, it still feels underwhelming in a way, Matt, which is, it's crazy because they got pole. Leclerc, Leclerc did a great pole position. Uh, I think he got both poles throughout the weekend and uh, he raced very well consistently. Ferrari didn't make any mistakes. Yet somehow I'm just left with this overwhelming feeling that that kind of didn't mean a great deal. Well, it, it's because it, at the end of the day, I think Aston in the race was actually a bit in the hands of Alonso, at least. Let's be very clear about this. In the hands of Alonso, I think the Aston was the better car than the Ferrari. I think Ferrari, looking at the upgrade they brought, has made a very big step. They're clearly competitive in qualifying and at tracks that perhaps suit their characteristics a bit better, i.e. don't have a two-kilometer-long straight for Red Bull to be however much faster than he actually than they were. You could see them being more competitive, but they still have a tire management issue that has not fully been sorted and has plagued them ever since the uh, uh, unfortunate uh, technical directive last summer changing the plank construction. The good news is it is a step. They like the car better. And if they continue on this path, you could see real two or three way competition by the end of the season. But I I think, I think, I think the ship for the uh, driver's championship has already pretty much sailed uh, on the Red Bull yacht. So this, this track is unique in its, its long straight was Ferrari in any way protected by that long straight or flattered by that long straight? No, I think the, the dead opposite. Uh, Leclerc made all of his time in the second sector in the tight okay. and twisty walls. Okay, well, in that case, it is a, it's a net positive uh, for, for Ferrari. Jono, you, uh, are you a Ferrari you know, Ferrari fan? A fan adjacent? Tifosi adjacent? Where'd you <laughs> I'm, sit? A, I'm a neutral, no comment on Ugh. Ferrari uh, <laughs> on the fan base part, but uh, Matt's right. It was through the corners and through the second sectors where the Ferrari was was doing best. Now, I know there was some graphic that came up during the coverage. I can't remember if it was during uh, sprint qualifying, if it was uh, which qualifying session that said Leclerc was like dominant over Verstappen through the whole lap at one point. But if you actually looked into the, the data or data or however you want to pronounce that word data. across the world. Yeah. Data in, the, in British world, yeah. data in Australia and the US or whatever. Anyway, uh, Ferrari were, uh, in, in my opinion, suffering on the straights during the race. Now, in Quali, where they made it up, and here's, I think that theory's still on where they've made a power unit that can be run very quickly over one lap, and they just have to turn the wick down during the race. So it's not only a tire management issue, but there's a PU element to it, which I think they still haven't figured out that reliability element to turn the wick up like they do in qualifying for a race distance. And that's where they're suffering here during during race distances. You look at their top speeds, um, Leclerc was a couple kilometers down on Verstappen when they didn't have DRS during the race. So they are suffering from a couple little issues here. They need to bring some couple upgrades to to help that. One issue is car number. What car number signs? Well, I was going to say the 55. second car. 55. <laughs> 55. Oh, my goodness. I nearly had said it. Now it looks like it's just easy Sorry. for me to say that I knew it. Car 55 is an issue. So I think signs has now found himself in that classic Ferrari number two role. And it's too late to do anything about it brad he fought it for a while and he he had some decent performances and and ran leclerc quite close for a while but i think it's gone now yeah i think science unless this weekend was just because he 
got the setup completely wrong and Park Fermi means he couldn't change it. And and that was the big reason. That aside, he just looked nowhere near Leclerc this weekend. I know Leclerc is a bit of a Baku specialist, but I, I think Sainz is going to have to settle into that number two role and he's not going to like it. Yeah, and along with that too is... Um... Uh, what was I going to say here is, yeah, so science, the worst part for him along with that, Brad, was imagine your teammate qualifying first and your P4. Like, there's nothing worse than that being in, in, in what should be the quickest car, a second quickest car. If you're second or third, you can deal with it. But being fourth compared to your teammate in pole is even worse. And there was an element to this, Matt, where it kind of felt like science didn't nail the setup in practice one. They go in a park Ferme, and now science is stuck with a car he doesn't like all weekend. This new format really got to the Spaniard. Well, I think a bit. It may not be, in fact, his favorite race. But look at it from the uh, silver lining side of the cloud. You're having a terrible weekend. And where did he finish? Oh, yeah, fifth. Hamilton couldn't even pass him. So... It speaks, I think, a bit to the job that Ferrari has done is that even on an off weekend for one of their drivers, they're still clearly, clearly in a good place. I think it's more the gap that he had to Leclerc um, by the end of the race that is most worrying for me. You could say, yeah, he's only a couple of places behind him, but I'm going to look at the results now. So Leclerc was 21 seconds behind Perez, who won. Sainz was 45 seconds behind it was a huge, huge gap. Um, so that's what I'd be most worried about if I was if I was science. How dare you use facts? <laughs> well, there, there was um, the bit where science were, well, the 24 seconds, by the way, it's a full pit stop almost behind him yeah. for, for uh, one fact about it. But uh, look, to me, it's he did, definitely did suffer. And I think it was all the way down to the, to the setup. Um, and, it, you know, that cost him throughout the weekend. And I do feel bad for him. Uh, but also, Leclerc is a better driver, so uh, it was bound to happen anyway. Also, along with that, actually, uh, I can't remember if it was Brad or Matt did mention, look, he finished fifth or whatever. Like, that's to me, is terrible. You should be in a car that should be finishing top four, and you yeah. didn't. And along with that, every weekend I've come for the last, I think, couple races, or even Australia, I go, All right, who are the quickest cars? Red Bull, Ferrari, Mercedes, Aston Martin. But then it changes in the race. Like, Ferrari is no longer quicker than Red Bull. I slot them second. The Ferrari, just on race pace, I don't know what to to do with them. Um, for sports bettors out there, I don't condone this, but if you want to bet on qualifying, pick a Ferrari because you might end up winning some money this year. Well, yeah, and there is, as we said, room for them to grow. But the interesting thing to me is you bring up Park Ferme after the first practice, and we have not one but two examples of drivers who chose to go to the back of the grid and reset themselves in the form of Ocon and Hulkenberg, who wound up playing a key pivotal role in the race because yeah. they did that very thing. And, you know, the sprint format may not be fully baked, but I think Park for me is something the FIA should absolutely look at mm. in terms of how it works across the weekend and ways that it can make the Sunday racing even better. Okay, so I want to, to, to end before we go on to the, the podium and our awards. I want to end by talking about the sprint format and how we how we felt about it um but you bring up an interesting point there of the hard runners who basically acted as a bit of a uh, a test bed for everybody else and if they could fast forward in the in the race a little bit matt they would have gone oh hulkenberg and ocon could go to the the last lap of the race these hards are gonna last forever and, and i don't know whether they saw that there was no particular drop-off but i have to say that tactic didn't work for either of them hulkenberg was hanging on 
for a safety car in the end. I guess the classic tactic is you go out on hards, you, you, you last a bit longer, it's a massive overcut, then you come out on softer tyres. And if there's a safety car in between when you pit and when the soft runners pit, then you get a free roll of the dice. But looking at the timing screens, even if a perfect safety car had come out for Hulkenberg, he was still the penultimate car on track. I just don't understand what the point of, of doing that, of just leaving him out there, hanging him out to dry was, you know, when they maybe could have put him on mediums that would have lasted half the race. Well, I think if we're going to talk about Hulkenberg, I think even though the Haas was fast, it was far too slow in the middle sectors. In other words, with DRS, Hulkenberg could barely keep up with Ocon. And so I think the decision was we get more benefit from a super late safety car than we do by putting us on soft tires that we saw in the sprint went away after seven races. And I, and I think for Ocon, it was the same calculus. You want that. I mean, I would have loved to have seen them put on fast tires with enough laps to make up a gap. But the reality is passing was pretty difficult in a DRS train. So the so the odds favor the late safety car in that instance. Jonah. Yeah, there was the fact that, um, sorry, I just was reading the chat. Um, They'll distract you. Yeah, it will. Um, yeah, so uh, now you made me lose our points, Spanners. What were we on about? We're on about. Uh, <laughs> we were talking about potassium and its uh, importance in athletics. No, uh, we were talking about uh, the going long tactic. Yeah, yeah. The the fact was that it wasn't just the safety car they were going for. It was also the fact that I mean, it was the red flag too, like an Australia situation. So look, there, there was a little bit of logic to it. I do agree with you. Like he had, he was damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like he was in a position where. They basically almost wanted a red flag. I know they said safety car maybe yeah. on the radio, but it was red flag was their only chance. And if the race does get red flagged and restart, starts from 10th, fresh tires, who knows? Could score a couple of points. Uh, yeah. And uh, whilst we're kind of just at that end of the grid, I will say that Gasly, who has come in in a, in a wave of optimism into Alpine, is having an absolute nightmare. Like, is anyone having a worse time in F1 than Gasly at the moment, Brad? Yes, Nick DeVries. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh, good point. Yeah. He's he's had a really bad start to his season. Um, I'm sure it'll turn around, but yeah, he's he's been in the wall a couple of yeah. times this weekend, not really matching Sonoda for pace. So, and I don't think Sonoda is the ultimate benchmark in terms of Formula One driver <laughs> okay. pace uh, either. True, so true, but yeah, DeVries uh, is having a worse time. Yeah, Gasly's having a pretty bad time. Uh, who else? Who else is not having a great one? Science this weekend's obviously. Uh, you know, yeah, and uh, Oscar Piastri, you know, in between Sergeant. in between sessions, is not having a great time. Yeah, and Sergeant struggled as well. And I think yeah, so a lot of the rookies just struggled this weekend, and it's a tough track to be fair. Sergeant's pace was that. actually okay though. Sergeant's pace when he when he wasn't um, in the barrier was was okay. I know <laughs> that's easy to cow, say, yeah. but I think Sergeant's actually mm. been quite decent rookie. Yeah. I think he's been closer to Albon than I expected. It's the thing I didn't expect was Gasly to be having quite such a bad time. Matt, I think I think one of my favorite things is a publication I shall not name decided to rate the rookies, and they rated the rookie with the fastest car best, oh, nice. the second fastest car second, and the slowest car worst. And I just thought that was entirely yeah. hilarious. I want to come back on Brad's Yuki slander, which is that Marco has been saying stuff like he needs another season and then he might be ready for Red Bull. So like they're still talking about him being a Red Bull driver. And so I think he is a reasonable benchmark. But you're right, for for a rookie coming in, especially one with, you know, championship credentials in Formula E, you would want to come in and beat Sonoda. So I completely accept that. 
And I know we're jumping around a bit here, but mm-hmm. I just want to you know touch on Gasly's recent session history. Wiped out his own teammate in Australia. Get your free practice completely done in by having a you know that chimney stack thing that was going on on the Friday practice. Uh, just stuff qualifying and then spend the whole race at the back. I, I am surprised that no one just called that. You, you know, in the Alonso McLaren days, whenever he was like P12 or below, he'd always have a mysterious you know, uh, thing. You know, <laughs> come yes. in. No, you've got to come in, Fernando. And I'm sure he told them, I can't be bothered to race 12 from below. Looking at Gasly, I think I would have just, I would have just called it. Just bring it in. Just, just have a blow. Take a blow, lad. There must have been a code word for Alonso's period. Is like, oh, if I say pillow, it means retire the car in the next five laps and mm. pretend like just go on this spinning wheel and pick one of these retirement issues I came up with on my flight here on my phone. But no, look, um, one, a couple quick things to knock off. You mentioned Debris last in the sprint, last in uh, sprint quali, last in sprint oh, no. uh, uh, in normal quali, last in the race. God, that's embarrassing. That was bad. Yeah, it's not great, especially when Sonoda qualified top ten in one of the qualifyings that we had i have lost track and that is one of the big drawbacks of the sprint weekend is i genuinely at times didn't know what session i was watching after the sprint quality on saturday i suddenly had a moment where i remembered that it wasn't setting the grid for the main race i was like, oh my goodness why have i been so invested in this qualifying it's not even for the main race it's for the sprint qualifying the whole thing is a sticking plaster and it is a solution looking for a problem F1 wasn't broken, but they need to come in with this sprint format. It's happening, Matt. I think this is a step forward, but it was too much. And I don't think, I think it diluted the weekend. That's, there we go, diluted. That's the one. For me, F1 was diluted this weekend. Well, it's interesting. Did you notice in the sprint qualifying that the teams had to use certain compounds? No. During certain oh, right. yes, yes, sessions? Yes, yes. Yeah, so medium in SQ1. Medium yeah. in SQ2 and then hards, no, softs in SQ3. And if they didn't have softs, they couldn't race. They couldn't compete. And yeah, they couldn't, they couldn't race. And what's interesting about this is that this is part of a Pirelli plan, which when I say Pirelli plan, obviously prompted by the FIA here to reduce the amount of tires brought to races by requiring teams to use specific compounds on a regular Grand Prix weekend, even without, even without a sprint race to be concerned about. They actually only went through 12 sets of tires this weekend, as opposed to the normal 13 on a weekend without a sprint race, where they have assigned wow. compounds during specific quality sessions, they're going to be down to 11. Are we catching that? Hey guys, how did you all feel about the sprint weekend? Well, the tire situation is Matt. No, Brad. You said your feelings on the sprint weekend had changed. What were they and where did you end up? So I've been firmly against the sprint format from its outset. I hate the fact that I've, I have hated the fact that we have inconsistent formats weekend to weekend. And I did, I disliked that the sprint race up until this weekend was effectively stint one of the main race and would un unshuffle any interest in qualifying all the things we've gone over a number of times this weekend it changed and i i really tried to i had a whole weekend free basically so i had the opportunity to sit down with an open mind spend all the time i needed to watching the whole thing and i still didn't get to watch it all because there's too much stuff to watch because obviously main qualifying is on the friday so normally i'd 
probably listen to practice um, whilst driving, you know, have it on in the car and just listen so I need to watch practice. Um, and that's cool. But this time there was an actual qualifying session for the main race, which I missed because it was on a work day. Then, yeah, yeah we had like lots of stuff happening on the Saturday, which was fine. Lots of action with a qualifying and another race. But the race was rubbish because short F1 races are rubbish. It was just a pretty boring, <laughs> apart from thing. the Russell yeah. Verstappen needle, it was a pretty rubbish race. And then we had today where we had the main race that I actually sat down and enjoyed. Obviously, it, was, it wasn't the most entertaining thing ever, but it was a proper race and it's just an F1 race. And I don't expect them all to be unbelievably um, entertaining each time. But there was too much to watch. There was too much. What they've tried to do is fill every day with action. But yep. we as normal people, especially if, if we've got jobs, don't have yeah. Fridays to watch action as well. So what they, what they might be doing for people at the track, giving them more to see whilst they're there, maybe that works for them. But as a spectator at home, I still, I thought it was an improvement in terms of yeah, yeah, format. the format, yeah. but it was still rubbish. I still don't think sprint weekends are, are needed. I still think the normal the normal weekend that we have that's worked for a long time is better. And I don't like how I was effectively forced to have to pay attention so much. Jono, you watch the races from the future, so it doesn't matter for you. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't happened. Uh, well, it has happened in the UK. I don't even know the time zones anymore. <laughs> You're um, ahead by a day. Yes, it's 6.30 a.m. And the worst part about it is I work full time now. So I'm on like three hours sleep and then going to have to work a full day. Oh, no. And I've got a hectic day. And I had to watch all this F1 action like Brad's talking about. And I'm sorry to say, but like if I'm 12, 13 years old and yeah, okay, I might miss sprint quality at school or something like that. But we're in situations. I'm glad Brad said it because I always thought that I was going to be some form of like negative fan or, or i'm not i don't show my true passions of an f1 fan why don't you want f1 all the time jono why don't you want it constantly well like i legitimately missed f1 for a few weeks and then this weekend i go well someone's got to mow the lawn someone's got to work <laughs> someone's got to earn money someone's got to do this someone's got to do that and i'm just like i don't even have time to scratch my own butt or my head and then i'm having to watch f1 and i love it don't get me wrong it's like a first world problem but to like where is the point who who's like to me i don't want to go into like i don't want to sound too serious about it i'm not going to go into extreme issues like oh cost of living crisis so i have to work to (laughs) no 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 it's fine my point is is that it's a lot of content it's saturated and um to me i just don't know where people have the time to do stuff i legitimately watch f1 races i'll have timing up i'll have this i'll have twitter i'll do this and i probably work out when i watch f1 races because when else am i allowed to work out and when else do i have time you know it's just this is so hard to find time to, to watch the sport now brad it's also the same issue this dilution with having 50 races a year or whatever we're going yeah. towards it yes. it was always good having gaps between races because the fewer races you have within reason the more valuable each race is and the more interesting and exciting it is and the easier it is to get the time of, you know, get the permission for whatever your home situation is to have those hours on a Sunday to watch that. When it's every weekend, like it pretty much is coming up soon, there is a point where each race matters less and you'll have to make a decision. A lot of people have to make a decision to just not watch some of them. And that means you're missing some of the story. And you that's why it's a problem that there's too much on this weekend because you don't, we're not complaining because we don't enjoy watching it. It's just that, if you want to be invested in the story, the narrative of the season, you 
you want to be able I to see to. everything that yeah. happens. But if things are happening that you can't watch for all these reasons, then it's a problem. So I, I am really enjoying this conversation between three people who hate the Sprint Weekend and hate the format. Uh, and I was impressed that Spanners actually nailed the fact that there's an entire half of the world for whom that Sprint quality happens at a very convenient time, a Saturday morning where I can watch it on my device while my kid, if I have a kid or, you know, my partner sleeps or whatever, I can watch it. I can watch that. I have a whole day where I can watch Formula One racing, whereas for a lot of people, that race happens on a Monday morning right before I have to go to work if I'm lucky. Right, Jono? Yes, exactly. And, and as somebody just said in the Slack chat, uh, find time to just scratch your own butt is something that they can teach me. Yes, I know. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that, look, Matt, I'll, I'll leave it up to you. But honestly, I'm, I'm, I, I, yeah, no complaints for me. Just go ahead. <laughs> no, I could ramble on for this. F1's hours. brilliant. I love watching Formula One races. It challenged the personal time I have available. And I think that was my only issue. But it's a cash grab because, you know, we were wondering whether to do a Saturday review or not. And to be honest, we're ad supported, and because we're being supported very well by the fantastic people uh, Acast. Sorry, Matt, we would have we would have made a few more advertising pennies if we'd have done a Saturday review. But I felt like that was going to dilute our feed, and I made that decision to go right. Well, let's just ramble on a little bit more on on Sunday. But that felt like the most complete podcast product. We have to be honest. F one is going to make money, more money doing it this way. Yeah, and and what I want to speak to is that. By offering more people bigger chances, more chances to watch some part of a weekend, they are also bringing in fans that that don't that aren't represented by us. And like when you talk about information overload, I am there with you. I I have multiple screens, I have multiple data streams coming in, I have multiple audio streams coming in. It is a lot to keep track of. And I think we see it in the journalistic output and this and that and the other. But the world of people who will watch some Formula One is much bigger than just us. So I can't fault F1 for trying. I'm with Brad. I think it's an improvement. I think they could still find more iterations that would make it more interesting for people and work better. And because they've already improved the product once. Let's just trust that they might be able to do so again. And the last point I want to make is that it has always been very clear. This is not something that's going to be every track every weekend. Yes, it's, it is. I think six, eight is nah. about the most we will ever see because nope. it just, even they will admit it doesn't work every weekend, every track, but it is an additional thing I, and it yeah. widens the formula one universe so i'm okay with it i agree with your logic that that should be the way it goes but i'm absolutely convinced that by 2026 every weekend is a sprint weekend let's go to the podium the azerbaijan grand prix happened the whole sprint weekend added some value to my weekend i enjoyed watching my my f1 i actually enjoyed the race today and as as seems to happen to me in increasing amount i enjoy my race i look online everyone's going that's boring that was rubbish that's the worst ever well do you know what sometimes sports boring sometimes it's a nil nil draw sometimes you just you watch a pointless game and then you just go and have a have a beer have a nap and, and call that a weekend and uh, i think f1 will always to some degree deliver boring events 
every now and then, especially when you have a formula that has evolved on on circuits mainly, and then you have an obsession, and it is an obsession with adding more and more street tracks, which you know, which you know fundamentally will not deliver racing action. How many more examples of street tracks do you need to see that they will always deliver that kind of race? So if you want street tracks, that's fine. But you say, this is a street track weekend. We're not going to have wheel-to-wheel action, but oh, look at the onboards. Look at the, the spectacle. Uh, you know, look at, look at the driver skill required. Focus on those things. But you can't like street tracks or promote street tracks and then be disappointed when there's no racing action. So I would say there's a lot of proper tracks out there sitting there unused. And if I could tap into the boardroom of F1, I would just say, please stop being obsessed with taking us into town centres. Leave the town centres for what they do best these days, which I guess is restaurants, because there's no shops in town centres anymore. Uh, But it is time for the Missed Apex Awards, and let's start with our positive one. This is where we're super positive, because it's thing of the weekend. Brad Philpott. Bradley Philpott on YouTube. Brad Philpott on Twitter. I lose track. I know you're trying to stay young and trendy, so you've gone for Brad. Because if there was a Ninja Turtle called Bradley, that they would definitely change it to Brad. Yeah, so I'm Brad on all of the media that allowed me to change. Oh, I see. Um, or, mm. or things that I've started since I got old. I'm still Bradley <laughs> at Bradley Philpott on Twitter, where... Because of Max Verstappen getting all tetchy with George Russell, I got a bunch more follows this weekend because people like it when I tweet about that stuff. You so now up have to 20k, twenty thousand followers on Twitter, and that yeah. is, that's like legit, like F one because F one's quite a small bubble still. So twenty k on Twitter is quite big. Um, but it's fair to say you have got that, but you are unrestrained. Like you are just completely honest about your opinion. And I know some people think that you are like you have some weird a birth vendetta against Red Bull and Verstappen. But I've seen your views evolve. Like I've seen that you were neutral. And in fact, you were something of a, of a Red Bull fan at one point, And then, then you changed your mind as certain things have happened. So it's not like a, a religion with you, but you're very, very honest. And, uh, and that has meant you've got this core following behind you. Whereas I am neutral. And that's why I only have 16,000. Yeah, you're 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 catching me because you're a proper you're a proper celeb. In fact, you're one of the most influential people in Formula One media, apparently, according, according to, to one tweet ever. Uh, but no, of course we're not. Uh, but go and follow Brad uh, by searching for Bradley Philpot on Twitter. Who is your or who, what is your thing of the weekend? It was the national anthem sung by the performers at what Baku, who all took their dresses off to reveal the the flag. And it was a really cool performance. I don't care if it was lip synced or whatever. It was a good performance. The national anthem sounded cool. That's my thing of the weekend. It's hit and miss, isn't it, with those national anthem performances? I would say they're Eurovision level. So I think there should be a competition at the end of the season where all the national anthem people come together and we vote on which ones we like the best. It's going to be hard to beat the kazoos. Where did we have kazoos? Was that Saudi Arabia? Yeah, it was. They had the, the, like, the piccolos or whatever. That was great. Okay, uh, Jono. <laughs> who was your thing of the weekend? Um, I know you love a, a national anthem, Spanner, so I'm all for that idea. My thing of the weekend uh, would have had to have been when, uh, I think it was pre-race, uh, it, was, it was when the reconnaissance laps, and they were going out for the laps, and 
um ted kravitz i think somebody was uh telling him and his camera person to sort of just move backwards like you're in the wrong spot and mid report ted has been nailing it which by the way ted's also been doing a great job all weekend i reckon he's always good quality reports and uh, literally he's like talking this is happening i'm reporting this reporting this. and somebody's dragging him away as he's talking and he goes are you good lad and he just keeps reporting literally mid sentence and that actually made me chuckle a lot i was that was hilarious to me i don't know if I remember if it was uh, if it was a sprint or if it was something else um, not my best moment of the weekend, uh, but that to me, I thought was, was gave me a chuckle. And you know what? You make me laugh. You get my moment of the weekend. <laughs> I'll go before Matt. My moment of the weekend was Charles Leclerc reporting that he had a cut on the team radio. And then the commentary speculating, oh, is that a cut in engine power? Is that a cut on his tire? Is that going to be a puncher? And then in the sprint race uh, interview, he revealed that, no, he'd seen a cat on the track and he was just reporting a cat. And that just reminded me so much of my kids that you'll be just driving along randomly and then one of the kids will go, sheepy weepy or moo cow. <laughs> and the Verstappen, uh, sorry, that Leclerc is just doing that, that very same thing. Cat, I can see a cat. Yes, very good, Charles. Uh, what's your tyre temperature like? Matt Trumpets, what was your thing of the weekend? Uh, and I am sitting here because you made me go last. Gobsmacked that no one picked this. But how could anyone's thing of the weekend not be Russell's overtake in the pit lane on Stroll? Oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> and, and was that, well, that should have been penalized, Matt. You can't overtake in the pit lane. Well, actually, you can. And oh, he yeah. did. And it was awesome. You're, you're all going to say Article 17.35 or something, aren't you, Brad? I just had a question about that. I, I understand that it was legal, but they were behind safety car. So... I didn't think you were allowed oh, to do any overtaking behind the safety car. That's so a good it point. wasn't that it was in the pit lane that was a problem for me. It was just that it was behind the safety car. Maybe and the only logical conclusion I could come to was, well, there's going to be overtaking in the pits because people you're, are you're stopping all swapping positions, and then other yeah. people are carrying on. So maybe the pit lane isn't deemed part of the racetrack or something like that. But I was confused about that. Yeah, which I look, I, I'll need to rewatch it now. I'm starting to doubt myself. But I don't think he actually did. He make his way ahead at one yeah, point. He did. I don't think yeah, he, he did. got so fully. He, he got fully to the line in in front of Stroll. Stroll was slowing down. Russell got ahead of him. Got to mm. the line first. Okay. okay. Well, no, I was going to add to that. Is is um, look, maybe I need to read up the the four thousand regulations that everyone <laughs> has for the pit lane alone, let alone the four hundred thousand regulations for the sport. Um, over whether that's considered like you can overtake mm. there. I know after Abu Dhabi 2021, they outlawed you going alongside somebody during a safety car period after Max started to abuse that a little bit. So that's actually a good point. And I, I thought about it at the time, but now it's starting to make me think about it more. Why was that not investigated? I least? think the thing they need to clamp down on, though, is is when you are the second person in a double stack. You can't just hold everyone up to, to not lose time. So that's that's where I would be looking as well. Uh, Matt? And and you would be correct. If anyone was really to be investigated for that, it would be Stroll for driving too slowly into the pit lane under safety car conditions. But the reality is, is the moment you leave the track, you cross that line, you're not behind the safety car anymore. And the, the and the pit lane rules are what apply both entering the pit lane and as we've also seen in Monaco famously, exiting the pit lane, you can pass people until you are back on the track and then the safety car rules do apply and in this case russell was investigated and found to be legal because he had one tire still in the fast lane <laughs> okay. when the overtake happened oh no you missed the apex
Do you know who never misses the Apex? Our patrons who keep Miss Apex going. We can offer an ad-free feed, a place in our coveted Slack forum. You'll find out about events quicker than anybody else, like the karting. Come karting, July 1st, Brighton Karting. Email me, spanners, at mistapex.net. But you'll be joining our community of patrons and getting worse extra content on the Friday before a race where me and Matt just hit record and we have a bit of a waffle. Patreon.com forward slash Missed Apex or click the link in the show notes below. Your support is what keeps Missed Apex going. Now then, who missed the Apex for you, Brad? This is the Bad Thing Award. Who did bad? This is a really easy one. Whoever is in charge of allowing photographers and other media members into the pit lane during a race, before the race has finished and when cars are still due to make pit stops, because we narrowly avoided Esteban Ocon wiping out humans in the fast lane of the pits today because of someone's incompetence. And on this subject, I've seen that the FIA have investigated themselves and they've given themselves a stern talking to that they won't let it happen again. The consequences of that would have been horrendous if only a few things had been different. They saw it just in time. There was actually barriers. They were putting the barriers out. So someone's really, really dropped the ball there. And Azerbaijan, it's either lucky or unlucky that there's a bit of a slalom, a bit of a left right into the pits, which A, slowed Ocon down earlier, I suppose, but also it meant it was blind. So I don't think you had to do much different for that to turn into, you know, photographer 10-pin bowling, Matt. And uh, and I think with, with stuff like this, with safety, you should treat this as if he did go into the photographers and then take your actions as if that was the consequence. Uh, yeah, and, and and it was clear from F1 TV reporting that allowing people into the pit lane at that point was acceptable, but not in the fast lane where cars are. And this is where the real problem was. And just with regards to the slowing down, I did look at the onboard. And what I can tell you is that about a second elapsed between Ocon being in view of the people and him being down a gear and on the pit limiter at least a car length and a half before where you're supposed to be down to pit lane speed. So they are very lucky that he was paying attention and slowed down enough to keep anyone from being in harm's way. And yeah, it needs to never happen again. And what inflated the situation was the fact that Ocon was about to be lapped. So you're thinking about it. Oh, look, Perez is about to win. Photographers, get out there. You know, the race is over. Oh, wait, the last car almost on the lead lap is about to pit. So that made it a little bit worse. All right. I'm going to get mine in. I'm going to give my missed Apex Award too. I know this is going to feed my emails, but I'm going to give it to Max Verstappen. Like, he's the current world champion. I just think he had a shocker. You know, it's not just being generally off pace. That's no shame. Sergio Perez is a good driver. I think your teammate's a good driver who had the measure of you all weekend. But the frustrations just bubbled over. And all weekend, the interviews were, I don't know if Formula One's a good life. I don't know how much I want to be here. I might quit if they mess with the format too much. I found uh, sprint qualifying boring. You just sat there in the interview. I I was bored during sprint qualifying because we'd already done one. Kicking off all sprint race long on Saturday, he was kicking off about the George... Russell thing then a standard two in public in front of the cameras you know really mouthing off to to George Russell saying oh well I'll do the same to you next time if you had a colleague who suddenly started behaving like that you'd be sitting them down and saying is everything all right mate and I hope the people around Max Verstappen are saying 
is everything all right, mate? Because at the moment it doesn't. So that's my missed Apex award is Max Verstappen. Jono, who missed the Apex for you? Um, sorry, I was laughing, but I'm genuinely look. If there is something wrong, Max, we we are concerned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for you, if I was yeah, a fan, yeah, I think too. I think fans and friends of Verstappen <laughs> should be concerned after that weekend. Uh, Jono, yeah, who well, missed the Apex? Sorry. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm going to switch it to uh, to Mercedes and uh, off the track in a sense. Uh, Toto Wolf uh, at one point this weekend didn't know what a hype man was. Now, uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's got to be almost a universal term right now. Uh, but he didn't know what a hype man was, and to me, I sat there going like, like, no, like, I'm sorry, to, I love you, Toto, but that was that just that was like, no, you got to know what that is. And look, maybe it's a an, an English term or something, but Toto's very fluent in English. He knows, <laughs> I don't know. I'm coming up with excuses for him, Toto. There's no excuse for that. You're giving hype him man. the missed apex award for not knowing what a hype man is. Wow, you got to know what a hype man is. <laughs> Have you met Matt? Oh, seven people get that reference. Okay, Matt, <laughs> uh, Matt, who missed the apex for you? Well, um, I, I'm actually going to pick someone who hit the apex, oh, but in a very, very literal fashion. Difference. That would be Nick DeVries. Yeah. I, I, I mean, granted, he looked really good last year on a track that had three turns on it, but I, I've seen him race in Formula E as well, and I'm just generally expecting a bit more of him, and I, I hope he can, um, I hope he can reach the standard that he ought to be driving to. Because right now, with a new team principal coming in next season, if I were him, I, I'd be kind of concerned. Thank you for tuning in to Missed Apex Podcast. Go into the show notes in your app below and follow my team. Follow Jono, who is Johnny ESS8 on Twitter, but his link will be in the show notes below. Brad at Brad Philpot, or search for Bradley Philpot on the less cool sites that wouldn't let, his cha- let him change his name. Sign up to come racing directly with me. Brad, Kyle, Stuffy, we're all going to be in that endurance race. So email me spanners at mistapex.net. May 27th, it starts 24 hours at the Le Mans circuit on uh, on iRacing. Get in touch if you're an iRacer and I'll give you the details. Follow Matt. He's the second best one at MattPT55 on Twitter and follow him, Matt Trumpets, on Facebook. And you can follow me as well, Spanners Ready or, or Richard Ready on Facebook. I'm going to change my username to Nearly Spanners just because of that remark. Second best one. That's pretty good. But until we see you next time, guys, work hard, be kind, and have fun. This was Missed Apex Podcast. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,